Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Theatrical Mustang Podcast. I'm your host, Katie Woodsick. This is episode 45 with Pamela Miatov, who is the artistic director of Annex Theatre and also on the steering committee of the Seattle Fringe Festival. So as you're listening to this, if you're listening to it the day it drops, which is September 19th, that means that last night Annex had a huge season announcement party for 2016. And so you'll hear Pamela talk about all those shows and directors in the podcast. Very exciting. Can't wait to see the shows. Also, if you're listening to this the day it drops, that means that you still have 24 hours to apply for the lottery for Seattle Fringe Festival. And so if you want to know more about either of those organizations, you're going to want to visit AnnexTheater.org. You're going to want to visit SeattleFringeFestival.org. I want to give a big thank you to Mark Therian for donating to the podcast. If you want to be cool like Mark, you can visit theatricalmustang.podbean.com. There's a little donate button on the left-hand side that shoots you over to PayPal. I want to give a shout-out to Wesley Fruget over at Forward Flux. I saw the one of the previews of both Green Whales and Still Life, and... Folks, they're both fantastic shows. I highly recommend them. They run through October 3rd. You can find out more information at forwardflux.com. All right, let's get to the episode. This is episode 45 with Pamela Miatov. Enjoy. Very excited to welcome today's guest, Pamela Miatov, to the podcast. Welcome! Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. So you are the artistic director of Annex Theatre. I am. Which I love. I love, love y'all over at Annex. Thank you. Can you tell me what's going on the rest of this season and what's up in 2016 for Annex? <laughs> well, uh, we have just, we finished um, the summer show and uh, that was Is She Dead Yet? by Brandon J. Simmons. Um, Had him on the podcast. Yes. How articulate is he? That's ridiculous. He's Ridiculously yeah. articulate. Which and, I'm not because um, I just stumbled over that word. <laughs> and uh, so great at everything. I mean, the first time we worked with him was as an actor in Red Ink, I believe, in 2007. So almost 10 years ago. Uh, he brought us another project as a writer. And then he came back a few years later and was like, I would like to direct this one as well. So, um uh, he's he's an incredibly articulate speaker and thinker, um, an incredibly smart person. He's also a fantastic actor. He's an award-nominated actor. He's a writer right. and director, and also a classical pianist, by the way. I mean, he just, he's fantastic. Um, uh, and before that, we had Bunnies by Keiko Green. Loved Bunnies! And uh, Zapoy by Quinn Armstrong. Um, Natural by Marcus Gorman. So we've had this really fantastic season, um, including the Zigzag Festival, yes. which you interviewed some of those ladies. And then coming up, we're going to close it out with My Dear Miss Chancellor about an underground Victorian lesbian fencing club. Uh, so <laughs> everything. We do everything at Annex. And then the final show of the season will be a late night paired with that, which is the Mad Scientist Cabaret, which Evelinda Hayes will be... Uh, 
curating and directing along with Tootsie Spangles. I'm so excited for that. And uh, it's going to be a devised piece, um, clown, buffon, um, all, all kinds of interesting, weird work of uh, seven creatures escaping from a mad scientist laboratory. And we don't know what they find yet. We'll find out in a few weeks. <laughs> and if you're not following uh, Annex Theater on Facebook, which you should be, Evelyn is being really great about posting uh, both video and rehearsal stills, which are just are going to make you want to see that. <laughs> she and she's the, she's the marketing, she's in charge, or helps. She's the marketing, marketing director at Annex. Yeah. I just love, love, love that girl. Woman. Woman. Um, one of the amazing things at Annex is that it's very, uh, it's an artist-driven ensemble, and it's really about uh, whole artists, creators, artists as whole creators. Uh, we don't tend to silo, we don't tend to bring people in as an actor and keep them there. We bring people in as an actor and say, what else do you do? And so we end up with writers and graphic designers and and um, writers, uh, actors directing and uh, playwrights deciding that they want to write a show starring themselves. Uh, Paul Mullen, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, all kinds of exciting things. But it really is about the creation of new work in a collaborative fashion. And once you start collaborating with other people, you start finding a lot of different talents that you wouldn't have had the opportunity to find if you were in an organization where you were pigeonholed and there was a really strict hierarchy about who was allowed to do what. Can you talk about the unique way that Annex slates their next season? Because it's not a typical process. It is not. Um, I don't choose the season. That is not Even in my power the as the artistic director. director. No. Uh, we have what we lovingly refer to as an anarcho-democratic collective. <laughs> and uh, we choose the season by consensus. And um, wow. that is uh, magical and maddening and difficult, um, but it is really rewarding. We put out a request for proposals in the spring, and uh, this year we got about 55, I think, proposals. And um, that was more than we were able to really see. So for the first year, we actually had to pre-screen and, and uh, do some pre-interviewing and uh, limit that. We saw, I think... Uh, almost 40 pitches from artists. We gave them each a 20-minute slot and um, put a bunch of our company members and staff members in a room and brought people in to, for about 20 minutes to literally pitch us the project. Tell us why this project is exciting. Tell us why it needs to happen. And tell us why we're the best fit for this production. Mm. And um, at the end of that process, which takes a couple of weeks, right. um, I think it was about 15 hours we spent, 15 hours hearing pitches over several weeks, uh, we go into a, a room, it was my living room this year, for an afternoon um, with a lot of food and a little bit of alcohol, and um, we talk and discuss and debate and negotiate and horse trade and argue until we come to a consensus on a season. It's not majority rule. It's not the thing that gets the most votes. Um, and sometimes the thing that gets the most votes when we do our initial sort of temperature taking vote at the beginning uh, gets dropped off somewhere in the middle. Um, but we just keep arguing until we have a season that we all agree we can support as the artist of Annex. And I encourage people to fight for their own interests. I encourage people to fight for the things that will feed them creatively. Uh, we are always looking for art opportunities for our artists, um, something that is rewarding and fulfilling and engaging for them, uh, which sometimes means that a, a really incredible project may not be the right fit for Annex because it doesn't work for the people in the room. I mean, that 
is one of our one of the most important phrases at Annex is the people in the room are the right people. They're the ones who make the decisions. So um, even if you brought us the most magical production in the world that is going to take Broadway by storm next year, if it's not the right fit for the people in the room, which is anywhere between 15 and 25 people, depending on sort of the ebb and flow of the Annex company, um, we, we're going to choose the, the projects that are meaningful for us so that we support them wholly. Because the other interesting thing about Annex Theatre is that it is an all-volunteer organization and has been for its entire history. Um, and its entire history, uh, it, we turned 29 in September. We incorporated in September of 1986. And I believe that one year somewhere in the middle there was a grant for an administrator and we had a half-time administrator that was Bruce Hall. Um, <laughs> the only person? The <laughs> only person ever to have been a, a paid employee of Annex Theatre. Um, for about a year due to a one-time grant that we got. But other than that, we've been running a, um, a, a large organization. We've been producing 8 to 12 shows a year, mm-hmm. and we have done it entirely with volunteer labor. And in order to pay those volunteers, you have to give them something. And what we give them is artistic engagement. We give them the opportunity to find out um, what they can do as a writer, as a director, as, an, as a marketing director, as um, uh, pretty much anything that you want to do. If you're willing to invest the energy in Annex, uh, we will provide you with that opportunity, and you get to teach yourself how to do it. We lovingly refer to it as the University of Annex. <laughs> <laughs> and um, whatever you want to do, you can, you can figure out a way to do it here. Can you talk a little bit about... I, f- I feel like there... I don't know if it was an article or just a Facebook thread recently talking about how most of the artistic directors in the bigger houses in the area are still white middle-aged white men. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Some younger white men. (laughs) But what does it mean to you personally to be in a position of power, be an artistic director uh, at a really vibrant theater in Seattle and have that leadership be a strong woman instead of a dude? I think it's really important. I mean, I don't think anybody ever intends to exclude women or people of color. Nobody ever set out to do that. Um, It's just that men, white men, uh, tend to be in a path that's a little smoother, it's a little clearer. People sort of see them as authority figures anyway. Nobody has to get around any any preconceptions that they have. And, And so... There's just kind of a, a slightly gentler slope mm. that, that people just kind of slide into. And the thing is, there are never, ever enough resources in any organization. Even a $9 million like Seattle institution like Seattle Rep, um, nobody ever has enough time. Nobody has, has enough resources. Nobody has enough money. And so nobody is going to intentionally set themselves up for a bigger challenge, more of a struggle, more of a, you know, everybody's just trying to do what seems easy and natural. And so um, it, it, that's why these things happen. It's, it's not ever intended as slight. But uh, what it means to me is that uh, there are actually quite a few women in leadership positions at the smaller organizations. Um, there are always women in leadership positions <laughs> in the lower paid organization. Um, but what we have to be doing constantly and consistently is um, making sure that we are training women to be um, as prepared or, or more prepared and more ready and more, and more capable and more skilled 
so that when those positions open up, there are women who are confident and who are um, able to channel their ambitions in the right direction and, and, and get into these positions um, who can advocate for themselves and who have the resumes and the skills to advocate for them. And I, I take that very seriously as an arts administrator, is making sure that um, I am not unconsciously playing into traditional power structures. Right. And um, I, as an educated white woman, am not very far from the top of the, of the privilege totem. I mean, I, and, and I take that very seriously, is, is to never forget. I mean, I think that um, one of the sort of big moments of awareness for me as um, a female artist was realizing, you know, how much more constrained my acting opportunities were looking at the casting breakdowns and realizing that um, only 30% of her roles in a given season were ever going to be open to me at all. Maybe, you know, 10% realistically. And then having that moment of realization, oh, you're a white woman, and this is so much harder for other people. I mean, as hard as it is for you, as sorry as you're feeling for yourself right now, you are actually pretty privileged right now. And I try to never, ever forget that. And... Um, always come from a place of uh, not uh, making work or making jobs for other people, but making opportunities for other people and allowing them to rise into it, to try to make as much space as possible for other people to prove their skills and prove their talent and prove their worth so that when these opportunities come up, they have the experience. That's fantastic. Yeah. That's a supremely eloquent answer, and thank you for that. I think thank that's... You. Um, I hope more companies follow suit because I, I think at, what one thing that Annex does really well is letting people know that you know the door is there, knock on the door, mm-hmm. right? It's it's accessible for people to mm-hmm. to try and to show up. So, tell me about the 2016 season. I'm dying to hear about <laughs> it. Uh, it is so exciting. Um, we. We still have one director unconfirmed. We're still working on that. Um, but at this, at, at press time, uh, seven of our eight directors are women. And that was not yes. an initiative that we set. We didn't, we didn't look for equity. We had exciting people that we wanted to work with, and seven of eight of them were women. Um, I think, let's see, uh, five, we have one co-written play. So we have nine playwrights out of our eight plays. Five out of nine are women. Fantastic. And, yeah, we, we have a season that is just chock full of uh, women and people of color and queer artists because those are the stories that are not being told. And um, we talk a lot about diversity initiatives and everyone wants Ooh. to show your numbers. I mean, that's the most basic way to frame this conversation. Just numbers are objective. Show us the numbers. And um, I think that is uh, that is a really useful frame, but the, the angle that I kind of want to come at it as an artist, and especially as an artist who is looking for opportunities for the people that I am working with, um, whose stories are not being told. Right. Um, and and that's, that's sort of the direction that, that I, I can provide something. I can say, you know, I, I go to most production most movies most plays are about white male protagonists with a supporting female and um they're people of color friends and you know if it's Shakespeare <laughs> it's people of color friends and servants and I want to change that I want to be different I want to give people the opportunity to tell their stories I can't tell them for them 
it's not it's not my right it's not my responsibility it's not i have no authority to tell other people's stories but what i can do is uh make a space for other people make a platform i think that a lot of the work i do is in making platforms for other people and um it doesn't sound glamorous but it's really really rewarding when you get to say that thing up there that thing that that she made or he made that exists and it would not have existed and it could not have existed if there weren't a space made for them and uh, so that's what we're doing. We're making spaces. Uh, we have eight world premiere plays in our 2016 season. We have four main stages and four off-night productions. So uh, Annex Theater, in order to wring every bit of art out of our tiny little stage, <laughs> we do uh, two productions simultaneously. We'll do a main stage show on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then an off-night show on Tuesday and Wednesday. We have a great new play by a playwright named Benjamin Benet. He works with Parley. He's mm. doing a, a, a play that will be directed by Pilar O'Connell. And oh, this fantastic. will be her first main stage directing play. But this was actually a really exciting one because we were looking at the script and we're like, this is really interesting, but it was submitted without a director and we'd have to find the right director. And Pilar said, this is a play that is really important to me. I am not saying enough Latino theater in Seattle. This is a play that I want to champion, and I want to champion it by directing it. <laughs> and that, that was that was kind of okay. All right, we're excited about this, and also we're excited about this opportunity for one of our artists. So, uh, wow. that, yeah, that is super exciting, and and that is the sort of exciting thing that happens when you have <laughs> an argument based. Like, <laughs> yeah. I can see, like I picture, I picture her in my mind's eye, like in a gladiator ring. Like, <laughs> I will champion this play. <laughs> I think she was sitting on the floor in cat leggings, but you know. There you go. Gladiator for cat leggings. Yeah. <laughs> um, and paired with that, we will have one of our company members, Mary Hubert, is going to be leading an ensemble based uh, generative exploration. It's called Girl, and it mm. is um, hero myths from a female perspective. That's the thing that Joseph Campbell never wow. got into. So she is going to be leading that as a devised piece, and mm. she's working with playwright Julian Narden, who is going to be um, taking the, the devised work that the actors are creating and is going to be shaping that into a script. Fantastic. That will be next summer. Um, we're starting the season with The Twelfth Story by Rebecca Goldberg. Uh, it's a new play about um, an academic in a future timeline who is researching a different future timeline in which... Um, uh, botanists have discovered that plants will only grow if they're told stories, and you have to tell the right story to the right plant. And uh, the, they, they begin to lose their stories. They begin to lose um, all of the stories that they know that they're telling plants. And, and in a um, most literal way, this means agriculture is going to collapse and be the complete death of their civilization. But also, it's, it's about how we tell stories and how we define ourselves and how we literally and metaphorically feed ourselves a story. I'm really excited about that. And that will be directed by Amy Poisson, who uh, directed a show for us, uh, I think, about five years ago, and then has been uh, carving out a career as a director, almost entirely new work by female artists. Mm. Yeah. Delicious. Isn't it? And um, uh, speaking of new work by female artists, uh, <laughs> Shay Young Yim is writing, I think uh, this is, is, I think this may be one of her first fully produced main stage plays. So she's writing a Do It for Oma, which is a, um, a Korean American lady Hamlet set in a convenience store, essentially. Holy crap. <laughs> um, our protagonist's mother has died and uh, she comes back seeking vengeance 
and um, nagging and haranguing and bullying her adult daughter into uh, avenging her her suspicious death in the oh. convenience store. I feel like I don't have enough good exclamations for all of these, all <laughs> these pieces, but uh, yes. And that will be directed by Sarah Porkalob, who has also been at Annex right. as a an actor and is known as a writer. Yeah. And um, was interested in directing. She put it out on, I think, on her on her blog, and I saw that and said, Sarah Porkalob. <laughs> I see you. Yeah. I see what you posted on your blog. Uh, communicate. Tell people what you want to do. and um, I think there's a lot of power in that. Because yeah, absolutely. We have, we have a lot of secret uh, aspirations, all of us, artists and non, and the power of just writing that on a page or your blog and getting that out mm-hmm. there. Magical things happen, people. Yeah, absolutely. What else? What else? What else? What else? Um, I'm doing these all out of order, by the way. Um, in the <laughs> fall, we have uh, The Lost Girls by Courtney Meeker, directed by Caitlin McIntyre. So what? excited. Uh, this is set at a uh, summer camp for girls. Uh, it's set among the counselors uh, who... Um, I love this. The the cast list in the in the front of the script has um, the the counselors' names, where they came from, and the amount of their college loan debt. <laughs> um, <laughs> because it's it's set at the summer camp for privileged, privileged girls, where these the counselors are these you know twenty two year old women who are barely adults taking care of almost adults for no money at a camp that is designed to empower young women, and um, yeah, so. Uh, I've, I have a feeling uh, we are going to find a lot of work for the ladies of the Seattle theater community who are going to turn out for this show. It's incredible. Yeah. And uh, paired with that is Unexpected Wilderness by Gerald Draper. This is a play that was championed by Jen Moon. Um, mm. It's about friends on a camping trip and um, a fake Yeti and a real Yeti and... Um, <laughs> A, a suicide, an unintentional suicide, and a, it's it's a, a very strange and, and um, very fun play. I just want to see all of them right now, <laughs> is, is the general feeling that I'm having. And we also have Eat Cake by Seth Tankus. He recently did a reading of this at Parley. Fantastic. Yeah, and that's, it's an exploration of um, families and relationships, very much from a queer perspective, um, we have one queer couple who are coming together to celebrate their wedding and another queer couple falling apart. Um, and I love this. He, he writes um, attributes and um, really emphatically refuses to specify uh, gender or ethnicity. It's, it's important that one, one partner be a person of color and one partner be white, but um, it is up to the director to find the best people and make that relationship. And, and I love that. I'm just really excited about the way that he writes the... Um, the openness and the way that he explores mm. ideas. And that will be directed by Catherine Blake-Smith. <gasps> Yay! CBS! <laughs> and um, what haven't I mentioned? The last play. It's not the last play chronologically, but it is... Uh, the working title right now is Puny Humans. Mm. And it is a play that Brett Fetzer and Keiko Green are co-writing. Shut up. Sorry. <laughs> And it is a bunch of... Really excited. (laughs) It is uh, intertwined scenes, uh, multiple narratives running through a Comic-Con. So... I think my heart just stopped (laughs) a little bit. But that's so... I love that you create... I love that Annex creates a space for shows that are sort of in the, I hope, zeitgeist 
captures enough of what I want to say, mm-hmm. but uh, topics that are that are happening now, and you're not because you're producing all new mm-hmm. work. It's not about oh, we need the Neil Simon chestnut in there for our subscribers. Right. You have a passionate audience base who wants to see mm-hmm. what's the new, to- what's the shiny new thing, what's what's on these really articulate, passionate young artists' minds. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that it's that's a very natural outgrowth of having um, a consensus-driven model is that it's not one person trying to figure out what everybody wants. It's fifteen or twenty people coming together. And saying, this is what I'm interested in. And um, like I said, we don't have any kind of mandate for the number of women in our season. We just have a lot of women in our staff and company. And we're not going to choose plays where women are secondary characters and, and where they're they're not empowered or interesting or developed. Um, we make the art that we want to see. And so by definition, it is strong roles for women and people of color and um, interesting zeitgeisty <laughs> things that the things that are on our mind are the things that show up on stage and also because of the speed with which we develop plays um at a repertory theater a play can go into development for years years, years. Yeah. um go through all of the festivals and all of the workshops and be sent off to the different festivals and is there workshops enough, other states. Is there yeah. enough buzz yeah. around this mm-hmm. i don't know and things can be workshopped to death. They can be workshopped into the opposite of what the player had originally intended. And um, so we uh, we choose plays uh, generally that are not actually finished. Sometimes they are, but more often they're not. That They're in a, um, pr- a pretty solid draft state. Uh, but sometimes with playwrights that we know and have worked with for years, um, Kelly and Conway Blanchard and Scott O'Moore, uh, we have accepted an outline and a scene <laughs> from them and just had faith that a year later we were going to get, um, and we have not been wrong. Uh, both of those playwrights have submitted us an outline and turned that into really incredible and may I say award nominated plays within a year because, um, they have done this before. They understand, um, how to write at this speed, how to write for this organization and how to write for this audience. And so our attempt is to, Give people resources, give people a platform, give them uh, smart dramaturgical feedback, and then stay out of their way and let them create and um, just stay with them along the process and support what they have. And um, we get really exciting work out of that. Um, We generally have, I would say, six to 15 months of development on a project. Um, We choose our projects in the summer for the following year. So the first the first play of the season we try to have pretty solidly finished mm. when we choose it. Um, they will all undergo revision. They'll all undergo reading and workshopping. But the, generally we try to have that slot at least pretty finished. But um, often the fall slot a year and a half away uh, is <laughs> it's almost never finished and often very sort of loosely scripted at the time. Um, but give people support and resources and they will do incredible things. I love that. Can I have yeah. that as a bumper sticker? <laughs> yes, it's a little long for a bumper sticker, but if you can if you can make that punchier, it's yours. And if people want people want to get all the updates and news about Annex Theater, they're going to want to visit annextheater.org. We'll have the link in the episode description. You can sign up for a mailing list. You can sign up 
to be part of the A-list of Annex. What are some of the perks of being an A-list Annex member? The A-list is a subscription series where you pay a small um, a small amount every month, and you can see everything that we produce on our stage. So that's our eight-show season. That's also our two cabarets, Weird and Awesome with Emmett Montgomery, which is the first Sunday of every month. And that is uh, – Emmett Montgomery is known as a comedian, but um, he is really a um, – a weird and beautiful performance artist finding out the weirdest and most beautiful things in the Seattle arts community and bringing them. So there will always be comedy in the show, uh, but it is just a celebration of all of the the people who make things in Seattle. He's going to round them up and put them on stage. And um, Spin the Bottle, which is our Mm -hmm. cabaret. It's been running, oh my goodness, 18 years now, I think. 16 years. I, I need to look this up. The, uh, this actually predates me at Annex. Um, it was already an institution by the time I got there. So the first Friday of every month, we serve up dance and theater and music and smut every month. So um, those are our two cabarets that happen. So two cabarets and uh, every month and eight shows, and that's all part of our A-list package. Check yeah. it out, people. Yeah. I think this is a good transition to start talking about Seattle Fringe Festival that bumper sticker of give people resources and support, they're going to create amazing things. Uh, tell us about the 2016 Seattle Fringe Festival. And right now, if you're listening to this, on the day it drops, that means you still have 24 hours to submit to the lottery, right? Because it right. closes September 20th. Right. So uh, we the, the original Fringe Festival... What happened in the 90s, it was a very exciting time in Seattle, Seattle theater. There were hundreds, I think, over that decade of, of tiny little fringe theaters and garage spaces that, that popped up and did a couple of shows, and uh, people were performing companies all the time. There was It was, it was a really um, frenetic and lovely and buzzy time. And um, then in 2003, that festival went bankrupt. Um, there were a lot of reasons, but um, it, it just, they made some... The not really great choices administratively and couldn't follow through and they folded and took artists' money with them. And um, it took about a decade for people to, to get over that and when we restarted the French Festival uh, <laughs> people were saying, um, are you going to pay us? I'm like, oh, we were not connected at all. <laughs> um, sorry. But, um, but we really felt that loss in, in the almost decade that it was dormant. Um, because this is an incredible thing in a community, this, this really low barrier to entry platform where anybody who has an idea can make a play and, um, the venues are closing all over Seattle. Production costs are going up. Uh, if you don't have a serious amount of capital and some really skilled producers, you're not going to be able to, to make your first play anymore. And if you don't make your first play, you can't make your second. And, and we, don't, we don't get you as an artist in our community if you're shut down before your first play even starts. Uh, so the Fringe Festival is an attempt to make the fastest, easiest, mm-hmm. most connected uh, theater festival that there is in order to uh, get 20 plays in front of an audience and um, an audience comes into a room, they pay $10 for a ticket, and they go see something that they probably have never heard of, they don't know anything about. Uh, they take a leap and um, see an incredible piece of theater for $10, and then go out to the box office and get a ticket and go back into the next room and see another incredible piece of theater by another incredible company that maybe they've never heard of. Maybe they're people who've been producing in Seattle for years, but um, it's about 
uh, opening up this space where you'll see literally 20, 20 different companies just all mixing together in two weekends and, um, and making new work. So for 2016, um, we pushed back to spring. Uh, there is no 2015 festival, so we're having it instead of September 2015. It will be spring of 2016. And um, we are splitting it over two weekends. Um, in in the really established festivals, they start at like 4 o'clock in the afternoon and people turn up. But we, we just didn't find that Seattle has a really established festival culture yet. So we are making it even easier for audiences to get to us. We're doing mostly primetime shows over two weekends um, just to make it as accessible as possible for artists and for audiences to get into. And let's see. Um, uh, we modeled it on the Canadian Fringe model. Sure. Because it's been working for decades there. Um, and we found some things that didn't work as well as Seattle, so we're changing those this year. And, but we're sticking with some of the really basic things, which is their, um, the lottery system in the Canadian Festival. Uh, it is not a juried, curated program. You uh, put your entry in, and it is literally drawn from a hat. And that, that is who you see this year. And, and it's this very uh, democratizing way of making theater um and it uh, creates this just joyful randomness <laughs> and chaos as as to who you see stacked up next to each other i'm excited to go to yeah. the drawing party and <laughs> oh, see good. What happens. Yes. that will be september 27th yes yeah come in the, is that open yeah. to the public that is open to the public it's at, at solo, solo. Mm-hmm. in queen anne yeah. uh if you want to I always feel like I don't quite belong at the after bar, but it definitely feels sort of like oh, it's it's rubbing you. elbows yeah. with Seattle <laughs> yeah. theater folks. Yeah. Uh, so you're on the steering committee. I'm on the steering committee with with who? Beth Ross Burquist. Fantastic. And um, we have had several other committee members over the years, and uh, uh, Beth is actually sort of our our north star. Uh, <laughs> uh, famously, at, at uh, we had a forum a few years ago, Seattle Theater, what's next? And right. people were getting up and they were saying, we need a fringe festival. Somebody should make this fringe festival. Somebody should do this. I don't know who, but somebody should. And, and Beth stood up in the back and was like, actually, uh, I just graduated and my MFA thesis was on the old Seattle Fringe Festival. So I have a few things to say about that. And uh, we all sort of glommed onto her. And so she's been um, just this, this great uh, stalwart leader of the, of the Seattle Fringe, just making sure that... We move forward. She produces, uh, she's the artistic director in a Ghost Light Theatricals. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. So she is also a producer and artist and administrator and mom and wife and, and she's just an incredible person. And um, uh, this year we are also working with Darcy Harrison, who has Love just um, a theatrical powerhouse. She, yeah. she, uh, she has a ferocity and, and a fire under her butt to get stuff done. Absolutely. That... Make leaves me breathless and exhausted. So, uh, Darcy, you're fantastic. I, I know you're listening to this. <laughs> and so, if people want more information uh, about the festival, they can visit SeattleFringeFestival.org. Absolutely. By the end of this month, you'll know the line. Not exactly who's going where, but mm-hmm. what what. Yes. Things have been pulled out of the hat. We're, one of the things that we're trying to do this year is that we are actually curating our largest venue. We've never done this before. So um, in the spirit of, of trying new things and shaking things up and seeing what works for Seattle, uh, we are curating some established artists for the for the single largest venue and then the other 18 to 20 uh, venues, uh, art, artists in the smaller venues will still be totally random. Out of the hat. 
Canadian style Canadian out of the hat. Canadian style. <laughs> I like yeah. that. Hashtag Canadian style. So, um, uh, and this, th- this is really important to me because one of the last sort of acting jobs that I did before I went full-time into arts administration <laughs> um, was that I worked with a company called Theater Simple. And we created a show that we toured in, uh, did a site-specific production in parks in King County. And then we took it to the Edmonton Fringe in 2009. And then oh, we wow. took it to the Adelaide Fringe in 2010. So um, the, the opportunity to, to create a piece and stay with it for years, to, to really create ownership and, and develop it and, and grow it, and to take it literally around the world... Um, was really exciting and also just to meet all of these artists in all of these different countries and um, uh, the Canadian Fringe especially has this just incredible socialist paradise infrastructure I mean it's it's just so gorgeous um, the, fe- the festivals are really established in their communities and the communities are so proud cities are so proud of their theater festival mm-hmm. that happens uh, one of the most exciting moments for me ever as an artist was the uh, the Edmonton opening parade where all of the acts you know they put on their costumes and there's a parade that winds through the streets of Edmonton and um, and you hand out your flyers and you hand to the crowd people in the crowds at Edmonton look for you to get your flyer you're flyering on a street corner in Edmonton and people come find you because they're curious about what you're doing in the festival and I, I had just Never experienced. I mean, that simple act of somebody trying to get a piece of marketing material from me was was so uh, exciting. And, and I want that for Seattle. I want us to have that kind of culture, um, especially because Seattle is growing and changing. I mean, Capitol Hill used to be a theater neighborhood, and now it's a luxury apartment neighborhood with right. a few, you know, tiny garage theaters just struggling to hang on by our fingernails. And uh, there used to be... I think another 10 theaters on Capitol Hill in the past decade. And um, now, you know, now we're just trying to, and, and you can't, you can't stop this kind of development. And I don't, I don't think you should want to, but we have to create a space for our community and our neighborhood and our culture, even as the city is changing around us, changing and growing around us. And um, that's what a French festival can do. And that's why it's so important to me to make sure that we have a place for young artists, a place for new producers, a place for established producers to try out this thing that, you know, that isn't going to make it into their main stage season. Um, and for all of those to mix together and to cross paths in a way that people don't often when we're, you know, siloed into our separate neighborhoods kind of doing our own style of theater. Well, I'm excited to see what gets pulled out of that hat. As am I. And thank you for yeah. being a champion of, of baby theater artists. Baby <laughs> theater artists to establish theater artists, I think. That's New really and emerging important. artists. There I mean, you go. I think that's, sort of that's so important. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds a lot more polished. Uh, <laughs> uh, Annex's mission statement is bold new work in an environment of improbability, resourcefulness, and risk. And I love that because all it means is it has to be new. And you have to believe in it, and you have to do it real big. <laughs> and uh, everything fits under that. And, um, yeah, Annex is, uh, you know, guiding statement for life. Just do it bold and do it new. I love it. Yeah. I would like to go back in time. Absolutely. To where this theater artist that you've become originated. 
what was that moment for you that you knew that theater was the thing that made you so happy on the inside? Um, I don't, I don't know that I ever had a single moment. I mean, I started out as a dancer. I started in ballet, a little bit of tap, not really tap, but, (laughs) um, but you know, just your standard after school classes. And, um, then in high school, I, I sort of wanted to be in the play and I didn't get cast in the school play, but then somebody dropped out and I got in and, and then I was taking drama classes and I, I don't know that I, I, I was not a stellar actor. I was not the, the star the, of the, you know, the high school plays. I was somebody who just really was drawn to that while being terrified the whole time. And, um, I just, I wanted, I wanted to make things and I wanted to be part of things and, and performing has always been very exciting, but exciting and terrifying in equal measures. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I went to Cornish college of the arts. I grew up in the middle of Alaska and, um, (laughs) and there was a poster on my high school guidance counselor's wall for Cornish college of the arts. And it sounded like year round summer camp. Mm -hmm. Um, so that (laughs) I don't, I don't know that any, that my guidance counselor ever suggested arts as a career. Um, but I went to Cornish. I, um, and went there for four years. I have a BFA in acting. And, um, I think actually a lot of people who come out of the Cornish program get into new works because they are really strongly grounded in this. There's amazing class, uh, the sophomore year called auto core where they, um, it, it is what it sounds like. It's entirely, self-generated teaching where at the beginning of the week they pin a note on the call board that tells you how many groups to break into and what piece you need to make by the end of the week and it will be just a prompt and you you have four days to create a nonverbal piece of theater which you then present to the instructor on friday who critiques it and um i don't know that any of these pieces that we generated were actually what i would call good theater but it's the experience of working together and owning your work and um, getting that opportunity as a young artist I think really separates out very quickly whether you want to be an interpretive artist as an actor or a singer or a dancer or whether you have a hunger to make new work and to express yourself by generating new work and um, I Again, I was I was an actor at Cornish and um, not particularly interested in directing at the time. I think I did, that's definitely what's more interesting to me now. But but at the time, I was still really set on being an actor. And um, my sophomore acting teacher. Uh, so this is the first serious acting class. This is our Meisner acting class. Oh my God, Meisner! Um, my first conference with her. So halfway through the first semester. She sits down across the table from me, stares at me, leans back, crosses her arms like as far as she can get from me. She says, I don't think you're an actor. Right? <laughs> That's what she led with. I don't think you're an actor. Oh. I think you're a director. You think too much. Directors think. Actors don't think. They just feel. Directors think. <laughs> and I wish you could see the face that you're making right now. It's just, it's... <laughs> I was so... I'm still angry about this particular frame. 
that I, I wouldn't let her be right, I think, for a long time. I didn't want to direct because of the way she phrases. And I still think that's a that's a terrible way to, to talk to to anyone or, or talk about directing as, as what you do if you don't make it as an actor. I mean, it was just such a... But um, 10 years later, I'm like, oh, okay, okay, I am. I'm a director. <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't want to admit that. But yeah, I, I definitely am more of a director than an actor. <laughs> what um, was... I mean, because you're... What? 1920 at that moment mm-hmm. and still I mean at that age I was still really respectful of structures mm-hmm. of authority mm-hmm. was that that was but you you sort of put up more of resistance to it or was that earth sh- I mean what was that moment for you was it more anger or disbelief or fear or disappointment I don't think it was I, I mean I think I was still too much of a people pleaser to be angry about that but uh, just instinctively I reject that. And um, all of my acting career, I want to work with smart actors. I don't want to work with actors who only care what they're feeling and can't pay attention to what other actors need or how not to tear their costume or, you know, how to stay safe with a with a fencing foil. I mean, <laughs> I want to work with smart people. I want a room full of really thoughtful, creative people who are aware of themselves and aware of everything in this space and are, are aware of what's going on in the news and are, are, are deeply intelligent people, I think, make the most interesting work. And um, the idea that actors should shut their brains off and just feel things, um, I think, makes a very self-absorbed uh, actor and a very inward-looking production. So... Yeah, I think I very intuitively rejected that in a way that I couldn't articulate until much later. But How did you move through the rest of your college years with that sort of feedback? Or I, I, didn't, I did not allow that or accept that for a long time, and so I, I was um, still working as an actor. And I think that um, I continued... I mean, I really do enjoy performing, and I, I really love working in the rehearsal room. I love working with other actors. And I found out pretty quickly, I mean, I didn't get a chance to do a lot of new work in college, but um, one of the first shows that I did uh, outside of Cornish was at Annex. And that was where um, I started to get really excited about the idea of uh, creating new work in which you are, you, you don't have a map with new work. Uh, you don't, you know, when you're the seven millionth Juliet, you know right. how everybody has done it and you can repeat what per- this person did or just not do this because somebody else did it. But with new work, you are just, you know, hacking through the jungle and you're trying to find your story and you're trying to find your way. And that, that was the most exciting thing for me, even more than getting up and performing. And it was a, a very gradual evolution. I mean, up until a few years ago, I was still auditioning for things as an actor. But um, I was gradually finding that the um, the dramaturgical work and the oversight that I was providing to directors and the directing myself was more engaging to me. And I personally, at Annex, I was just not able to um, perform as an actor and then be outside of that um, in order to give feedback to directors and talk to playwrights. Um, I think that works in smaller organizations, but in a large organization where you've got many, many actors coming in and you don't have these really deeply established relationships, it's really difficult to be 
both the employee and the boss <laughs> of a director in a sense. So, um, and I, I just find the, um, the play development, the dramaturgical work, um, and the artist development to be more fulfilling to me as an actor, which is great because I don't think I was the best actor. <laughs> I, I look at these young actors coming out like, yeah, you, you are definitely the actor that I would cast instead of me. So, uh, it's a good thing that I'm here to, <laughs> to help you be the best actor you can be instead of, uh, trying out there myself. I think that's a good lesson in, in just acknowledging that artists have an evolution. I mean, mm-hmm. hopefully, yeah. Right? We don't stay the same. And uh, perhaps encouraging our listeners to try try your hand at something that maybe excites and terrifies you. Mm-hmm. And, and empower yourself to become more fully rounded as an artist yeah. and try new things. We need more fully rounded artists. And um, the, the system isn't always set up to let you do that. The system isn't set up to ask actors what plays they want to write or, you know, what they want to design. So find those opportunities for yourself. I love that. I think that's a great place to close. Lovely. Pamela, thank you so much for being a guest. This is wonderful to talk to you. Thank you. And I can't wait to see what Annex does next and can't wait to see the Fringe Festival this year. So thank you so much. Thank you. 